in his divinity, the person of the son doesn't change. God as a whole doesn't change. Creation doesn't involve any changing in God. The change is entirely on the side of, of the creatures or, you know, the created in the created realm. But what does happen is that some creature now is related to the person of the son in a new way, in a way that's ontologically dependent from the side of the, the creature back to the person of the son. And in this unique case of, a, of the divine mission of the son, the incarnation, it's the very being of this human nature that is in a way really just the created effect in a way subsisting from the very being of the divine person. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When we think of the doctrine of Christology, oftentimes we approach Christology in a way that is quite isolated. I can't think of, oh goodness, there's been so many times in which I'll be reading a work on Christology today, and the doctrine of the Trinity rarely comes into intersection or conversation with Christology itself. But did you know that's not always how theologians approach Christology? In fact, many theologians of the past actually approach Christology through a very Trinitarian lens. We can think, for example, of the Church Fathers or someone like Thomas Aquinas himself, in which their Christology was truly a Trinitarian Christology. And the reason this was so important, well, one of the reasons is that it actually guarded them from any number of the Christological heresies that really in the fourth and fifth century invaded the church, but it also allowed them to use their theological imagination so they could work from the biblical text and think about how to define the connection between the divine missions themselves Themselves and the processions of the Trinity. This proved quite strategic in the medieval era, especially with someone like Thomas Aquinas. And sometimes this is one of his forgotten contributions. In fact, some, such as Karl Rahner, have even accused Thomas Aquinas of divorcing Christology from the doctrine of the Trinity. However, we're experiencing quite a renewal of interest in Thomas Aquinas, and those who have started writing on his Trinitarian theology, as well as his Christology, have pushed back, pushing back against Rahner to say, actually, if we take a second look at Aquinas, could it be that his Christology is, in fact, informed by his Trinitarianism. Well, I have invited a very important theologian to come on the Credo podcast, Dominic Lake, to talk about his uh, recent research, the Trinitarian Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas. You can read about it in a book by that title with Oxford University Press. 
Dominic, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, this is such this is such a, a crucial point in theology, and I'm so glad that you wrote a book with this very title in it, because with the rise of modern theology and many of those who are reacting against modern theology, there is this common accusation that, well, Christology has been divorced from Trinitarian theology, and sometimes Thomas Aquinas himself becomes the whipping boy for this type of accusation. Help us out here, because as you've pushed back against that caricature, maybe talk to us about why it's important to clarify in the first place. Yeah, I think, you know, this critique is an old critique that goes back a ways, but a, a very prominent 20th century voice for it was Karl Rahner, who's a 20th century Catholic theologian. And he argued, you know, the Trinity must be a saving mystery. If you don't see how Jesus Christ is revealing the Father, for example, you're obviously missing something in the the central, you know, the central part of the mystery of what Jesus is revealing to us. And so if you can't connect these two great Christian mysteries, something must have gone wrong. And I think he's right about that in the sense that these mysteries are related to each other. We we only come to know the Father as Father because the Son comes to us and reveals him. And isn't that just what we read in the Gospels? Uh, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son has revealed him. So that has to be right, that the Son coming into the world is about revealing the Father and giving the Holy Spirit to the world. And so we're, we're right, you know, that's the central kerygma uh, of the Gospels, and it's Trinitarian, but it also has to do about the identity of the Son or the identity of this man who is the Son of God. So, well, right there, we're at the heart of these two great Christian mysteries, which I think are, are intertwined mysteries, that is, that of the Holy Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, and that Jesus Christ is true God, true man, the Son of the Father sent by the Father into the world for our salvation. So those are, you know, that's, that's like a very basic profession of faith. And then our job as, you know, as theologians in the church is the job of the church, I think, to articulate in, you know, in a coherent way that humans can hear and understand in some measure, even though we will not ever fully comprehend or exhaust these mysteries, we can understand something of their intelligibility. We can see that it's coherent. We can see that it doesn't involve a logical contradiction and therefore is possible for a human person to believe. Now, given what you just said, maybe it would be helpful to define procession and mission, because this really is, I mean, your argument there really hinges on understanding this. And and one of the reasons I mention this is because once we understand procession and how processions are, are then extended, it, this is some of the language that Thomas uses and you do as well, it, extended in the missions themselves. Well, at that point, we can also well, we we gain a little bit of insight into, well, what you call this circular motion in which, take God's goodness, for example, God's goodness 
Well, it comes from him, of course, from the Holy Trinity to us, and then uh, it returns to him as well. And so this, of course, has significant implications then for how we think about Christian living all the way through to the beatific vision itself. How do we understand this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing that I would want to say is what we're doing here is like a, a very deep and refined form of scriptural exegesis. So, I mean, this is not disconnected from a biblical theology. In fact, I think it's intrinsic to a biblical theology because there are deep mysteries that are revealed to us in God's word. And we have to think them through in order to interpret those passages rightly so that we can understand how the Bible is a coherent whole and therefore the message that God is communicating, communicating to us in his word is a coherent whole and it all fits together. So that's basically what theology is doing. And, um, you know, so when you take a question like the one you just posed, I mean, I think the first place to go is back to the scriptural passages that are like the fontal source, the origin point of these kinds of theological questions. So, you know, it's the heart of the gospel that the father sends the son into the world. So John 5, 36, the father has sent me, Jesus says. And then a little later in the gospel of John, this is John 8, 42. He says, I proceeded and came forth from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Okay, so there you have the classical text that becomes the place where theologians and, you know, in Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, but, you know, there were many theologians in the patristic age before him who meditated on this. Okay, what does it mean to say that the son proceeded and came forth from God and that he was sent by the father? So these are two different words, proceeded and sent. And then if you look carefully also about the Holy Spirit, those same words are used by Jesus. So Luke 24, 49, Jesus tells the apostles, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. Okay, so Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And he later says in John 15, 26, when the counselor comes whom I shall send you from the father, even the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness to me and, and so forth. Okay, so we have these ideas, procession and sending. And sending in Latin is missio, and that's where our word for mission comes from. So we're just really talking about the, you know, the, a kind of a translation of that word sending. Another way to translate it would be a, a mission. So really, that's all we're trying to figure out. What does it mean to say that the Son proceeds from the Father, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and that the Father sends the Son, or the Son sends the Holy Spirit? Now, if I can capitalize on that just for a minute here, that going out, that sending, that we're, we're calling this mission, sometimes we, we think of this in ways that are, are quite human, and as a result, we can fumble the doctrine of the Trinity. It's important to emphasize that this is whenever we are are speaking of the Trinity, and especially as we're encountering the the, the Trinity in the Gospels, for example, that uh, so much of what we are seeing accomplished is an inseparable operation. This emphasis on inseparable operations and different 
fathers said it in different ways, right? The, the external works of the Trinity are undivided, said Augustine. And yet at the same time, and you, you make a point of this, Scripture also gives us really a license to look at, say, a person of the Trinity and notice how their mission is being accomplished. And so you use the language here of termination or terminus in order to emphasize how this is happening. How is it the case in which all three persons are working to accomplish, say, the incarnation, to, to bring about this incarnation in the first place, and yet the Son alone is the one, to use John's language, who is made flesh. You introduce, building on Thomas, you introduce the language here of created effect. How does that how does that language help us understand this mystery in which it's not the Father or the Spirit who's incarnate, it is the Son, and yet at the same time, the incarnation is an impossibility if it's not the inseparable work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, the first thing to recognize is that we're talking about, on the one hand, God and himself. In his, in his divine eternity. And then we're talking about something that's happening in the world or in time, you know, so Jesus is born in time. So there, there is, you know, there is a time before he is born as man. Of course, it's the great early question that was confronted in the Arian heresy, where Arius claimed that the son was born in eternity so that as God, there was, this is Arius' little tagline, there was when he was not, speaking about the Son in his divinity. And the church condemned that at the Council of Nicaea, and that's a kind of a pillar of the Christian confession of faith. It's absolutely fundamental to say, no, the Son is divine. He is a divine person. He's fully divine, and he's consubstantial with the Father. That is, he's uh, of one nature, and so there is no... There's no way in which we're talking about two gods or a, sub, or a subordinate quasi-divine reality here when we're talking about the Son. We're talking about God. Okay, so that's a, trinit- a purely Trinitarian truth. And the classical tradition will talk about that in terms of procession. So it's going to say there's one divine nature. There are three divine persons. All three are co-eternal, consubstantial. They're, they're equal in power. They're absolutely equal in divinity. There's no distinction among them except with respect to their origin, their relations of origin. And that's where the question of procession comes in. So classically, and, and Aquinas would be a, a very good example of this, you know, the, the only respect in which the father is distinct from the son is with respect to, or the, the son is distinct from the father, maybe is a better way to put it, is insofar as the son proceeds from the father. And so there is this eternal begetting within the divinity where the father is speaking his word, you might say, or begetting his son. And likewise, the Holy Spirit, according to the classical uh, way of understanding this, of course, in the, you know, I'm, I'm in the West, and I think that the, the West has the right and true exposition of the gospel on this, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Of course, that's, you know, a big debate that isn't the subject of our conversation today. But and this would be another procession. Now, it's very important to see, and maybe your listeners are already very familiar with this, but it's very important to see, I think, from the, from the classical, say, Thomistic or classical uh, Catholic understanding, 
like the Western understanding, you have a different pattern of relations that arise because the father is unoriginous and she is the one from whom the son proceeds. The son proceeds from the father and so is has that relation to the father. But the son also, with the father, breathes forth the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is from two divine persons. The son is from the father and is a principle of the Holy Spirit, whereas the father is the one who is a pure, purely principle and is not from any anyone else. So that gives you a, a unique pattern of relations that allows you to distinguish the three divine persons. And Aquinas thinks that that's the only way to ground a distinction within the one God. So to really be a monotheist and to profess that that distinction of person. So that that gives you, you know, one important part of the picture, like why is procession important? And then why do we want to say that, as you were pointing out, the actions of God in the world in in at least one important sense are inseparable. That's the that's the claim that you, you see in Augustine. But of course, you see it also in many other church fathers, including in the East. So I, I don't want to, you know, it's, Augustine is famous for this, but I don't want to suggest that it's only him or that it's just coming from him. That's sometimes said in, in the literature. I think it's not always that historically sensitive. It can be kind of a, a caricature, especially for people who are not fans of Augustine. I want to say, oh, yeah, Augustine is the source of all kinds of problems. You know, original sin being another one that he is often uh, accused of of um, introducing, which I also think is an unfair criticism of Augustine, but that's, that's also not our subject for today. But then we want to talk about, okay, sending of the sun into the world. This involves now something new, which is not just the, in the eternity of God. Um, and we don't want to, we don't want to make the sending of the sun into the world, something that constitutes the sun as sun, because if we did that, we would make the identity of the son dependent on something in the world. Mm -hmm. And we want to say, no, God is a trinity, even if he had never created the world. So that, that's a very important point to, to hold on to. But this brings us to the next thing that you asked about, which is this question of a created effect. So Aquinas would ask a question like this. Okay, God's, God's eternal. He's omnipresent. How can one divine person like the son come to be present in the world, if he's already there, it doesn't really seem to be possible then to talk about the sun really being sent in a meaningful way. And Aquinas' solution to this is, I think, very important to, you know, it's about the relationship between God and the world. So it's a, like a particular application of this a very important question. Yeah. And it's about these different relations. So I, I don't want to, you know, go on too long in, in answer to one question. But if I can just keep going and try and explain this, yeah, please, uh, no. this idea. I, I live in Washington, D.C. I think an analogy here can be, can be helpful. In Washington, D.C., you know, on a, on a Saturday afternoon, I will go down and walk on the mall in Washington, D.C. So that's, you know, the big grassy area uh, between the Capitol and the Lincoln Memorial. And in the center is the Washington Monument, the huge stone obelisk. And when you're standing at one end of the mall, you look down, you see the obelisk, and in a certain sense, it's, it's very true to say that the obelisk, the, the monument, is in your sight. So because you're seeing it, now you have an image of it in your mind, you know, your imagination generates what Aquinas would call like a, an image or a phantasm of, of what your senses are perceiving. 
Okay, the fact that the monument is now in your site really depends, that is, it's ontologically dependent on the monument being there. If the monument weren't there, you wouldn't have it in your site. Mm. So you seeing the monument depends on the monument and it introduces a change in you. So there's a change on your side, but there's not a change on the side of the monument. So the monument does not depend for its being on you seeing it. It's just there. And it's not changed by the fact that now you're seeing it when before you weren't. Okay, that's just an analogy. It's a defective analogy. It's only partial, but it does help us begin to understand a little bit of what Aquinas is getting at when he talks about a divine mission and the kind of created effect that's a new created effect. So what, he, what he's trying to say is that God is not changed by the incarnation. Now, that maybe is a confusing way to put it or potentially controversial thing to say. But what we want to say is that in his divinity, the person of the Son doesn't change. God as a whole doesn't change. Creation doesn't involve any changing in God. The change is entirely on the side of, of the creatures or you know the created in the created realm. But what does happen is that some creature now is related to the person of the Son in a new way, in a way that's ontologically dependent from the side of the, the creature back to the person of the Son. And in this unique case of, a, of the divine mission of the Son, the incarnation, it's the very being of this human nature that is, in a way, really just the created effect in a way subsisting from the very being of the divine person. Mm. So you get in creation something that is new, a new, a new instance of human nature that is really dependent on the person of the son. And in fact, because it's the hypostatic union, it is the son in person as man. But this doesn't involve a change in the son's divinity. Yeah. That that point right there, that the incarnation is without change, that, that, that there's no there's no change in God, as you put it, as a result of the incarnation, is so crucial. It's so contrary to so much of of what Christians have been told since modern theology, the rise of modern theology, in which suddenly this is a problem at the very least, or change in the divine son actually becomes acceptable. And then a door is open then for really redefining the, not just Christology, but the doctrine of God itself. So, that's right. And it's in a way to, to look at, you know, God changing as a feature, not a bug. And but that is a very modern idea. Yes. It really comes into, you know, comes majorly into play in theology with Hegel. So, I mean, it's just helpful to recognize if some of your listeners are, you know, thinking, oh, well, I've always sort of assumed that that was, that was what we believe and that's a good thing. That is actually a very modern way of approaching the subject and is not actually something that emerges from, you know, a, a fundamentally Christian reflection. It's much more like a, a German philosophical idea that gets you know, enters into the theological bloodstream, it seems to me. Now, let me pose an objection to what I've just said. You know, you read the Gospels, and Jesus is claiming to be the Son, and he suffers on the cross. Okay, obviously, the Son suffers. You know, how can you, that, that seems to be like the, the most obvious part of the Gospel, is that the Son becomes one of us, 
and he goes through human experiences and he experiences change and, and, and real suffering, including death. So he's got to be able to suffer in some way. And of course, the classical theological tradition going all the way back to uh, the church fathers and, and before and, and coming up all the way today, to, to today says, well, yes, of course, the son does suffer. And this is one of the central tasks of theology is to articulate how the son can be truly God and also suffer. This, this, was not a, this is not a new controversy or a new question that, that believers are, are asking or scratching their heads about. In fact, that's the genesis of a lot of the great early heresies. So sometimes people look at, for example, Arius, who taught that Jesus or that the, that the Son was not true God, a kind of subordinate or lesser God, quasi-divine, really a creature. And uh, Arius taught that not because he wanted to somehow diminish the sun, but because he wanted to preserve God from changing. And he saw the difficulty with the cross. And likewise, there's lots of other problems. Nestorius would be another one, uh, another great, you know, classical heresy. And uh, there, you know, it's trying to say, well, the, the suffering only belongs to the human part. And the human part really is its own person, uh, whereas you've got a divine person over here. And then the, the difficulty that arises is trying to figure out how the, the human Jesus can also really be the son of God. And I think with Nestorius, you're not able to reunite them. You've separated them and you've, you've given yourself two persons. And, you know, the, the church did not, did not think that that was an adequate account of the, of the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it, that with, with each of these heresies you've mentioned, there tends to be, I mean, with Nestorianism in particular, there tends to be such a division between the natures themselves that the hypostatic union is compromised and forfeited. And in a way that in the end, even though the motivation in the ancient world may have been to preserve, say, the impassibility of God, the application of that of that commitment, it really it becomes a mess as soon as they turn the corner to to Christology. I've noticed at times how, in one sense, we could say maybe this is a you know an overstatement, but in a sense, we could say in the the ancient Christian world, everybody affirmed something like impassibility. Even the heretics affirmed impassibility, divine impassibility. But in terms of how then to move from divine impassibility to Christology in particular, well, that became that became a dividing line that would eventually then separate the church fathers from Arianism or other heresies as well. Now, th this does bring up another point that I'd love for you to touch on, and it's this. As we make that move, right, we have to be really careful as we're moving from our Trinitarian theology to our Christology to make sure we're not slipping into something like saying, oh, well, the sun must not be impassable anymore, or the sun must not be immutable anymore, but rather in those Chalcedonian terms, we're, we're trying to decipher, okay, how do we articulate the incarnation with without confusing the natures on the on the one hand or or dividing them on the other hand and explaining how this union occurs in, in the person of the son. But as we do that, we think of the Nicene Creed, for example, how it moves very naturally to the economy and begins to describe 
these missions and, and their effects in the world. Another question comes to the surface at that point, which is, what do we what do we make of the incarnation? Is this is the incarnation of the Son? Is this well to use Thomas's language? Is this fitting? And this becomes really a hot discussion in the medieval period. You think, for example, of the differences between, say, Thomas Aquinas on the one hand or Duns Scotus on the other hand, who answer this question in very different ways, sometimes very conflicting ways. So talk to us for a minute about this, because when we are describing these missions and trying to do justice to the incarnation, how does Thomas answer this question? Is is any person, I mean, should any person be incarnate? Is is this random that the son is the one who's incarnate and not the father or the spirit? Or is there something more there that would make it fitting for the son to be the one who's made flesh? Yeah, that's a great question. And let me just add one more biblical verse to the conversation before before actually taking up that question. Which is just, you know, on the question of divine immutability, you know, you might say, okay, well, is that maybe just a philosophical commitment or something? And I, I think it is very important to be committed to divine immutability for lots of reasons, but it certainly is borne witness to in, in scripture as well. James 1, 17, every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is not changing. And we want to say that the son and, and the father are, are absolutely one. So we, if we're going to put all these verses together and try and understand how Jesus is really God, but he experiences suffering that that's going to require us to like, you know, somehow figure out how he could both be unchanging in his divinity and subject to change in his humanity. And that's actually, I mean, I think that's where you find the, the key to the solution. Yeah. It's, uh, you find it already in St. Athanasius, but you but you get it uh, very well and systematically explored by Thomas Aquinas that you have to have in Scripture a double account of Jesus. So there has to be, we read certain passages in view of his divinity. We read other passages in view of his humanity. So we're going to have to attribute some things to him in virtue of, of his divine sonship. And that's immutable, impassable, omnipotent, etc., and then we're going to attribute some things to him in virtue of his human nature. And that's going to be his ability to suffer and his ability to change through time and so forth. Okay. So that's, uh, that's maybe just a little parenthesis to end the topic we were talking about just a second ago. Now you were asking about why did the son become incarnate? And this is a, this is a great and classic question. So is it, is it the case that there was something particular about the son that made it right that he be sent by the father into the world to, to take on our, our human nature. And Aquinas thinks the answer to that is profoundly yes. Okay. There's something very powerfully true about saying that it was, it was right. And even in a sense necessary for the son to be sent to save us. I mean, isn't this also what Jesus, you know, seems to allude to at various points in the gospels about why, why he was sent by the father. And at the same time, we don't want to say that it's absolutely necessary in the sense that like this is the only way God could have saved us or that there was something on the side of God that required the son to become incarnate or even Aquinas says that only the son 
could conceivably become incarnate. Aquinas thinks that there's a danger with, with that last position that I just, just stated. Only the Son could become incarnate. Therefore, the Father, like there's something about the Father as Father that makes it impossible for him to become incarnate. Or there's something about the Spirit as Spirit that makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to become incarnate. And his analysis goes something like this. If the divine persons are really persons in the same sense, like we really have one idea or definition of divine person, then there can be anything in that definition that differentiates the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in, in, the, in the sense that they are persons, they're all going to be the same. They're, they're, the distinction between them can't be based on the definition of person because they're all equally persons. So there can only be some distinction coming from someplace else. And that's where he talks about the order of the relations or the processions. So the Son is from the Father, the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son. But there's nothing specifically in that that, that requires us to say that only the Son could become incarnate. And yet it's, there's a profound intelligibility to what God has done, and we can understand why it's supremely fitting for the Son to become incarnate. And there Aquinas uses the, what he identifies as the three proper names found in Scripture for the person of the Son. That is Son, Word, and Image. Image. So he's the image of the Father, as St. Paul writes. So when we talk about him as Son, we're identifying how he is consubstantial with the Father, so of the same nature. A Son is of the same nature as his Father. When we're talking about Word, we're talking about how he proceeds by way of intellect. That's a beautiful kind of meditation that Aquinas draws, Augustine began it, Aquinas, I think, completes it. It's drawn from the prologue of John's gospel, where uh, we're talking about the, the word who is with God and from God and sent by, sent by God to take on our flesh. And then image, we're talking about the, the likeness between the, the son and the father. So in these respects, Aquinas sees like a profound fittingness there when the son becomes man, he gives us a share in his sonship. So we become adopted sons and daughters of the father. That's a very profound theme. You know, we, we become really children of the father and able to say the our father now in a new way. We also are insofar as God makes the world through his word, through him, all things came to be, or through him, all things were made as we read in John's prologue. So God restores creation through his word. And there's a, there's a beautiful meditation that Aquinas has on that about how if you're an artist or even a, a craftsman, if you're an architect, you build a building based on the conception or the plan that's in the mind of the architect. So you might think of the blueprint. You build a building according to the blueprint. That's like the word of the father. It's the idea, the eternal conception in the father's mind. And then uh, if that building falls into ruin, how do you restore it? You go back to the original blueprint and you restore it according to that plan. So in that sense, it's right for the, the word to become incarnate, to be the one through whom creation is restored, because he's the one through whom creation was made. Now, and, and if I can just extend this a little bit further, I mean, the, your explanation there, it really goes a long way, doesn't it, to, to explain why then Thomas can use the language of fitting. 
if this is the case, if this really is the case, then it, then it truly is fitting um, that the Son is the one who's made flesh. I love the, uh, which is a very biblical move there to talk about how we are sons in the Son. And so you, we begin to see the connection there. Does this, in Thomas's day, and given the decades and centuries after him, is how does this compare to other medieval theologians? I mentioned Scotus, for example, as one of them. Do you have any insight there? Yeah, you know, there was a debate over the incarnation and whether, whether in a way, God needed to become incarnate in order for creation to reach its, to reach its goal. If without sin, God would have become incarnate. That's a famous medieval debate. And Thomas Aquinas answers, well, you know, it's possible that God would have become incarnate even if there had been no fall, if there had been no sin. But when you look at the Bible, it seems like in, in almost, you know, every case, the, the incarnation is connected with a remedy for sin. So he says that on balance, he, he admits, well, it could be that God would have become incarnate even if there had been no sin. But it seems like the better answer is that probably God wouldn't have become incarnate had there been no sin, because the incarnation is a remedy for sin. And that, that might immediately then lead to further speculation. Your listeners might be thinking, okay, well, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, then how would they have been saved? Or how would have they gone to God? And I think Aquinas' answer to that would be something like this. Well, they wouldn't need to be saved because they were already created in grace at the beginning. And they had that friendship with God. So God would have brought them to himself in some way. So they wouldn't end up living eternally with God, with the vision of God in, in perfect heavenly happiness. But that wouldn't have had the note of salvation because they would not have sinned or they would not have fallen. So they would have, they would have of course, been blessed by grace, but they wouldn't be saved in the technical sense mm. in that they hadn't been lost and then needing to be saved. So even our language here that we're accustomed to using in Christianity, you know, is very deeply colored by our awareness of the fall and of our need for salvation because of our sinfulness. But you had another theological tradition, John Duns Scotus, a famous Franciscan, a later medieval Franciscan, who took the opposite view from Thomas Aquinas and said, no, creation really is already from the beginning, irregardless of sin, going to culminate in the incarnation of God. That's like the highest possible conceivable union of God with creatures. And so God was going to do that anyway. So there is a, there is a medieval debate about this. And students of Aquinas have been fighting with students of SCOTUS for a long time about that. <laughs> the problem I have is that there aren't enough students of SCOTUS around to get in arguments with them. <laughs> and then we end up having to just, you know, talk about it among ourselves. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, we're, we're almost out of time here. And perhaps we can get you back soon. I would love to, but Matthew, if I, can I extend our discussion for just a minute? Yeah, please uh, do. One of my favorite topics that's also in the book is about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, and I know. And that's where I wanted to get you back. <laughs> so yeah. We, we want to have more talk time about talking that. about it. That, that's, that sounds wonderful. I'd love, love, to, love to do that. Let me just, if I can just say one. one yeah, about please that. do. I think 
a neglected thing in in uh, in contemporary theology. There's a lot of people who, are, who want to do full justice to the scriptural passages where we see Jesus being led by the Spirit or you know filled with the Spirit. The Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, of course, at his baptism. And so we want to do full justice to the action of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. How do we understand that? I think Aquinas' teaching on the divine missions gives you an, an awesome way to, first of all, hold on to the truth about the incarnation, that Jesus really is the divine son in person. That's what we're talking about when we talk about hypostatic union. So he's, you know, this man is God. And so in that sense, he has a kind of, you know, divine, divine authority with respect to his person. But as man, his human nature is not changed by that union. Mm. That's the council of Chalcedon. So you have a union of natures, not a mixing of the natures. So the human nature really remains a human nature. And Aquinas says, yeah, okay, so if that's the case, we need both the hypostatic union, which is to say this man is God, and we need some way that that human nature as a human nature is elevated to be an instrument of the divinity so that the man Jesus will have every virtue, every gift of the Holy Spirit. He will have every manifestation of the Spirit, every charism, and he will be able as man to act perfectly, sin, perfectly sinlessly, always in perfect conformity with the divine plan. So his mind filled with the divine light, his, his will in perfect conformity to the Father's will, that needs a, an explanation in the side of his human nature. Yeah. And Aquinas' answer to that is, well, that's, we're talking there about the Holy Spirit in the human nature of Jesus. So that allows you to affirm both that Jesus is true God and you in no way give up on the centrality of the hypostatic union. When you say, well, but flowing from that union, then God gives this grace to the humanity of Jesus that he be absolutely filled with the spirit. And this is so important for the gospel because it culminates in the fact that at the end of his passion and resurrection, what does Jesus do? He breathes forth from his own humanity. He breathes forth the spirit on the apostles and from there on the world. So that the spirits, you know, the, the gift from the father of the spirit to the world passes through the son. That's a Trinitarian truth. And not only that, but it, it, it passes through the son's human nature as an instrument of the divinity. So that Jesus gives the spirit both as God and as man, if we understand that in an, as an instrument of the divine son. So I think that account that Aquinas has of um, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, that was, that was something that I worked very hard on in my Trinitarian Christology book. That's one of the more original contributions that I think that, that the book makes to the contemporary conversation. It's like, bring this back into view. And I think it's a major feature of why like someone today should care about Thomas Aquinas's Christology. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I really do think I oftentimes will hear this. A student will say, well, if, if we're right, that Thomas is just being faithful to the creeds that have come before him, what's the point of reading Thomas? And uh, this is one of the important factors to mention, right? Because yes, he is faithful and he's given you a faithful 
articulation of what those creeds have said about the Trinity and Christology. And yet at the same time, he's advancing that that tradition. He's he's contributing to that conversation in order to explain how exactly it is that uh, we we receive the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ himself. I love this point yeah, because at the end of of your treatment of Christology, you, you almost leave it with this cliffhanger. <laughs> and and you and this really brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning of our time about inseparable operations. You end this way to say, well, yes, we receive the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ. And this is the Holy Spirit, as you just mentioned, that's uh, this is so crucial, right? That is is so important to his humanity, uh, which sometimes we forget that. We just think, oh, the Holy Spirit is, is just present somewhere in his ministry. No, this is actually crucial for his humanity. But then you make this great point and you say, by the way, don't forget that it's the Son who sends the Holy Spirit to his humanity in the first place. <laughs> and so here we come full circle. We uh, Sometimes we're on the receiving end. We, we forget that. Did you want to add? Maybe this would be a great. Yeah, no, point. I'll let you close one, on that one point. final point, which is you know, which is the question you're you know giving from your student is a great example. You know, it's uh, this is deep and you know very profound, very rich material. It's we're we're trying to for to raise our minds to God, mm. and we're trying to probe the intelligibility of the mystery of God as he has revealed it through his son and as contained in divine revelation. That is not a simple task. (laughs) That is something that actually God wants us to devote every ounce of our capacity to doing that. That's our dignity as his creatures. You know, that's why he's given us human minds. Really. If you think about it from, from God's perspective, like why have human beings he wants, you know, he's made us for himself. And he's made us to know him and to love him. But it's not easy to do this. And this is why, actually, it's very important for us to be guided by those who have gone before us and to learn from them to to receive this tradition that is being handed down to us. Because if there is a tradition, you know, it comes to us going all the way back to the most primitive witnesses to Jesus Christ, who are the apostles. So uh, this is one of the reasons why I think it's really important to study people like Thomas Aquinas, but, you know, before him, the church fathers, and ultimately to ground ourselves in that apostolic revelation, that apostolic witness to Christ, because that's, that's the ultimate source of our, of our faith and of, our, uh, of the truth and, and of the, the knowledge of God that he's wanted to give to us. And, and we need, you know, we need to recognize, I'm not going to be able to put all this together by myself. I need to go to learn it, and, and we learn it from that, from that sacred tradition. We've been talking to Dominic Legg about Christology. If you want to learn more, I can't recommend enough his recent book, The Trinitarian Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's with Oxford University Press. I don't say this often, but I really do mean it when I say it. I really think that this book is one of the most important books written in the last decade. And my hope is that uh, whatever tradition you may be in as a listener, this book will 
not just bring you back to an orthodox, um, faithful, biblical understanding of Christology, but do so in a way that helps you understand that unique contribution that Aquinas brings to the table that we that we just mentioned. Come back again. We are eager to talk to. about the Holy Spirit and the gifts that help us understand this this hypostatic union. I Thank you one, so much I'm, for joining I'm, us. Just, can I make one final plug? Which yes. Is, um, we have the Thomistic Institute, which I'm the director of, as well as being a professor of theology, puts out these videos on Thomas Aquinas' thought called Aquinas 101. Now, these were really made for undergraduate students, but we've discovered that a lot of theology students find them very helpful. Yeah. And I'd recommend that to any of your listeners who are just curious about learning more about Aquinas, beginning to read him on their own. These videos are made to just introduce you to his thought and kind of walk you through the concepts that he uses and make it possible for you to start picking them up on, on your own. So you can find it on, on our website, which is Aquinas101.com. Uh, certainly if you search on, on YouTube or Google, you'll find them. So you, yeah, it, uh, there were even a couple videos about Trinitarian Christology. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.